Good afternoon and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dyer, and today I'm really excited to be interviewing Professor Geoffrey Braithwaite, who is the founding director of the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, um, which is where I work. Um, he's an international expert in health services and systems. And I'm also joined by Paige Martin, who's a computer programmer here at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, um, and she's going to help me um, by asking a few questions. So I would like to throw to Paige for the first question. Hi, Geoffrey. Hi, Paige. So I guess maybe to start off, I'll ask you what got you so interested in the intricacies of how a system works and, and what makes it tick and, and the challenges involved? Thanks, Paige. That's a great starting question. So, you know, I don't think anybody grows up wanting to be a professor, but I think Anybody who's a researcher or a professor or does a PhD and is interested in health systems shares with me a particular feature, and that is we've all got a curiosity gene. We're all really interested in how things work, probably as kids. So, you know, we here we are in the Institute with 150 people, the Australian Institute of Health Innovation, nationally and internationally recognised for its work trying to research health systems, not just the Australian health system, but others internationally, trying to figure out how they work, and then trying to say, through our research efforts of trying to figure out how they work, how could they work better? And in a nutshell, that's how I came to doing research in healthcare, because it's fascinating. Like, it's a complex, adaptive system. But the reality is, it's got life and death and taxes, a whole mix of stuff, costing, you know, 9.3% of GDP if you want to get all technical. That's an incredible thing and really a privilege and an honour to figure out how it all happens, how all this melange of stuff happens and then how can we make it work better, this complex system. I hear that a lot in my interviews, that it's a privilege. And I think that's one of the reasons I started this podcast, because I feel like I'm working in a, a sector where people do things because they're truly passionate about them. So more specifically, like, how did it work? You're at university, did you do a science degree or a medical degree? So I've done a number of degrees, you know, I'm sort of that curiosity gene, I said. But, um, but I did psychology and I, I, I was really hell-bent on being a psychologist. You know, I really want to understand what makes people tick. Yeah. Um, and I did that. I was also, in the first part of my career, really working in healthcare. I, was, I became a manager. I was a human resources director. I was interested all the time in people. I'm sort of kind of like this nerdy person on the outside, but a people person on the inside. Or is it oh. the other way around? I don't know, but I feel like I'm the same. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I suspect we've got many. Some of the people listening to this podcast are fellow yeah. travelers, you know? Um, so I became a psychologist, but I'm not really a psychologist. I'd be pretending if I said that. You wouldn't put me in front of patients. Um, and, and, but what I did do was I became a human resources manager. And then I was hanging out in teaching hospitals, being a human resources sort of director, you know, hiring and firing and training yeah. people and all that sort of stuff. But I sort of would find myself in any spare time I had gravitating to the clinicians who were doing research on patients with various conditions, but also on health systems stuff, how they were not only trying to do research to try and improve the care for their patients, but how they were trying to really improve the systems of care that provided care for their patients. So 
I really gravitated to being as much interested in teaching and research as ever. And so I sort of gravitated to the university, did a PhD, and became a researcher. And what do you think some of the, we'll get to the highlights later, but some of the challenges about being a researcher? Because I want to highlight that, you know, research is awesome, (laughs) but there are challenges. From afar, research looks pretty neat and interesting, okay? And that's true. It's both neat and interesting. However, it is extremely complex. Firstly, you're working on a complex adaptive system trying to understand it. Secondly, how do you go about that? You have to design a study. That's not trivial. Testing the right hypothesis, formulating the right question, uh, using your expertise and the expertise of the team that's investigating a particular question, and we can give some examples of particular questions that we've you know, put some meat on the bones, then, then you have to have skills to be able to get the funding for that, i.e. pitch a competitive grant. Then you have to, when you get the money, run a team to do the research, which is the kind of research we do is always complicated. Then you have to be, have sufficient skills to be able to write a paper out of that for publication in a top journal, because we only pitch top journals because we're the Australian Institute of Health Innovation. Then you have to be able to give good talks at conferences and to various stakeholder groups to feed the results back to the system that you want to try and improve. So you've got to be great <laughs> running teams, yeah. great writing for publication in the best journals, yeah. uh, a great teacher. Uh, you know, who's going to fill this job description? Um, Paige, I think. <laughs> she, she, she doesn't well, realise yet. People. Paige is the next generation. <laughs> So if I could put something into concrete terms, what you would, what advice you would give for someone who was sort of a younger researcher, but also I'd really like to hear about when you actually set up the institute and how the challenges and highlights and what keeps you running in life. Okay, that's, uh, that's you've yeah, hit me like with several questions. questions. Yeah. 10 questions. <laughs> Let me try and tease them out. So we've got 150 people here on the floor of Macquarie University, and, and that itself, talk about a complex adaptive system, yeah. we've made one. We've You can't do that alone. So really, um, there's three directors of three centres in the Institute, yeah. and each of us run our own sort of uh, centre. I was going to say fiefdom, but it's not actually a fi- You know, it's not like... I it's, don't know what a fiefdom is. It's kind of like, you know, um, the lord of the manor, okay. or the lady of the manor runs their own... Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, it's, it's not really like that. Um, it's, it's trying to capacity build people in each centre to be the next generation of researchers. We spend yeah. a lot of time doing that. So we're investing in present research and engaging people... Page and a lot of other people in doing that research, but that's really an investment. Of course, it's to do the research. Yeah. That's what we're paid to do, we're funded to do, but it's really the capacity building. So that's one thing. And you can't do this alone. So we've got three centres. We've got Professor Enrico Coera, who runs the Centre for Health Informatics, Professor Joanna Westbrook, who runs the Centre for Health Systems and Safety Research, and my own centre. I was the crazy person who forgot to duck and got two jobs running <laughs> the institute and one of the centres. But that's because of my passion for this. I don't want to not. I don't want to become a just a research manager. I want to still do research. Yeah, do the research. Understand. So we've got three people who share the load, and that's very important. I don't think you can have a group like 150 and manage it by command and control with one person at the top. And I feel like there are a couple other questions in there. the challenges of setting up an institute. You need some skills. You need persistence. 
you need, and I say this to everyone, whether they're a senior researcher or a, more, a less senior researcher, you need a track record. You need to publish papers to build yourself a track record yeah. so you can pitch for your own grants. You need, um, a, well, you need a PhD because yeah. you need to have tra- become trained in research, in some yeah. aspect of research. But the most common bit of stuff that makes successful institutes like our centres or people is that curiosity gene and persistence. You need to want to do this. I, I don't know any successful researcher who, who believes or acts like it's a nine-to-five job. And I completely agree. I was just about to say this, and I shouldn't say things on air that people are going to hear, but this is literally... Sorry, Betty and all the other people who have been amazing to me, but this is the best job I've ever had because there is such a feeling of coherence and everyone's here for the same reason. So I, yeah, I guess I was just wondering how you built that. I think it's true to say for Joanna and Rico and I and some other senior people who um, have been with us for a long time, we've been doing this for more than 20 years, yeah. we haven't have worked in other academic or other business environments where it hasn't all been lovely. So what makes it different here? Because we determined that we wouldn't have it like that. So parts of academia are full of people who, you know, the classic joke about academia is the the, the conflict is so high because the stakes are so low. Oh, that's So people mean. fight over things like, what's the authorship order on this paper? Yeah. Or who should get this grant? Or who should get this funding? Or who should get relief from teaching? Yeah. And they're fighting about stuff all the time in many academic units, too many for my taste. And we had all experienced good and bad workplaces, and we said, why don't we set up one where it's really good, where it's supportive? So I think there's something about creating an environment where you can, we're not perfect by any means, an environment that says we want you to work hard, we want you to contribute, but we also want to support you to the hilt. And we want, we're invested in your career because if you do well, everybody does well. Well, that must be why I feel so welcome and happy here. I'm glad you feel welcome and happy. And I'm also now going to throw it a page. What would you like to ask? I have a question from the perspective of being someone on a team um, within CHI. Um, Uh, Wait, could we just specify what CHI is? Because we've got listeners from like internationally, (laughs) so they might not know. (laughs) The Centre for Health Informatics within the Australian Institute of Health Innovation. Thank you. Um, I know that the teams within our centre, they all have their own super interesting and impactful streams of research. And I I know that there's collaboration between the teams. I've sort of seen that um, sometimes it can be also challenging to get sort of teams to find a common ground when they're also working on a lot of their own projects that are dear to their heart, but also very set in their specific stream. So how do you go about encouraging collaboration between the teams in your centre when they might be working on their own specific projects? So that's a great question. So you're right, Uh, people do a PhD because they're interested in a specific topic and then they a PhD by definition, a pretty narrow thing, and you become mm-hmm. a really, really deep expert in a specific area. And then post your PhD, you want to carry out that research. And then you join a team and there's other people on the team. You're from Mars and they're from Jupiter and somebody else from a different <laughs> solar system. They're so <laughs> different in terms of their you know, interests and expertise. Because we don't ask questions that are trivial, they require a multidisciplinary team, they require different kinds of expertise, then definitionally all the work we do is of the kind that you're absolutely describing. So that's a central problem for anybody. You have to figure out ways to keep the person satisfied 
that they still can have a trajectory of their own interests, their own research across time, but that what they do is add that expertise, and it might be methodological expertise, like they can do a, they can do coding or programming or whatever, um, with somebody who is more expert in, well, how do we translate these results into a product? So finding that balance, letting people have their own head and their own trajectory and their own expertise, but melding it into a team is what we're constantly focused on. So what I'm going to do is give Paige one more question. And based on her last question, I think it's going to be good. No pressure. <laughs> She's laughing at me. <laughs> and then I have two just short questions. Okay. Um, perhaps from um, the perspective of someone who has to oversee such a large institute with so many people from different disciplines that's crazy you can't possibly you know know each discipline yourself at such a, a, a you know high level um, so what are some of the main challenges when it comes to coordinating um, such a like a group of people and, and knowing exactly who you need and and which positions to fill the first thing is um, I think Enrico and Joanna the two other center directors and I would all agree on this you have to sometimes trust people and stand back and let good things happen. And, you know, there's something about, somebody once wrote, a whole, well, it's now a whole literature on something called servant leadership, where the person at the that. top isn't just command and control calling the shots. You might do that early in your career when you've got a small centre and you personally know all the work that's been done. But we have 150 people, we publish more than 200 papers a year, We've got 70 projects going on at any point in time. It's a multi-million dollar business. So you can't know everything. So I stopped worrying and having sleepless nights about the fact that I don't know, Paige, you and what you're specifically working on moment to moment, day to day, week to week. But I know you're in a good team with a supportive environment. I know you're collaborating within your team and across the teams whenever you need to. You can come and see me or somebody else and say, hey, I need to be connected up with somebody internally or outside of the institute. Can you help facilitate that? Of course, I do that all the time. So trust and building people's skills, giving them confidence, all those things are what helps make it work. And also now Paige knows that she can come and see you, which you might regret later. <laughs> Wherever I can, I have an open door policy. But sometimes it's closed because I'm trying to write a paper. So I have two final questions, and I usually prep people about my final questions, so I'll maybe prep you on air. But we'll do the first question first. What is your proudest moment in research? Like, I know, like, it's huge. Like, there's so many things to be proud of. But what is something that really stands out for you that you look back and go, I really had an impact or that really makes me want to keep going? Can I do a couple of things? Um, yes, yes, you can. Okay. So one thing is watching somebody come in essentially with a blank slate and then work with us for several years and yeah. go out with a PhD. Sometimes people come and see me and say, I'd like to do a PhD. And sometimes yeah. they're ready for that and sometimes they're not. We'll have a chat. But sometimes the people who do a PhD, and I've supervised a lot of people to successful PhDs, okay? Yeah. I've been privileged to be able to do that. Sometimes they're not only the first person in their family who's got a PhD. Sometimes they're the first person in their family who's been to university. And there's just enormous satisfaction in seeing somebody then get into medieval clothes and a yeah. funny hat <laughs> and get conferred by the Chancellor, you know, that they're now doctor such and such. Yeah. It's just fantastic. So that's, that never, in, even though I've done heaps of those, you know, I've supervised heaps of beer, 
that never-endingly gives me. The other thing is when we do some of the larger studies, you know, like everyone, I started out doing sort of smaller studies, small-scale studies. Everybody does that. But when we get the big studies like our care track study, where we look at how, how much of the care delivered to adults in Australia is in line with evidence. And we've done the same study, just finished it. It's, so it's on my mind, care track kids. How much of the care delivered to children in Australia is in line with evidence? We've done the biggest study in the world on children. We'll be doing some media on that when Fantastic. it gets published. We've just sent it off to a journal. So the question there is, who can do that research? And we're one of the few groups of people in the world who can do that research. So this is a huge study. It's got 6,700 kids in it. It's 160,000 assessments of their care in three states. 60% of the population. Oh my God, that's amazing. So it's a huge study. And what we've done is we've figured out across 19 common conditions that kids can have, obesity and asthma and all sorts of conditions, how evidence-based is the care? That is, how much of the care is based on a randomized trial, i.e. the best evidence you can get, or it's in line with the guidelines that clinicians themselves say is the way care should be delivered for that condition. This is a huge study, and we've just finished it. We work with a whole bunch of paediatricians. We work with uh, clinicians across the country, uh, especially in three states, are, Queensland, are you, South Australia, and New South Wales. Are you allowed to say the results yet? We can't say specifically the results, but generally studies that have preceded us have said that care is evidence-based about, about uh, around 50% of encounters. Now, most of us who are experts in the field know that you know, there's lots of reasons why you don't deliver care that's evidence-based or in line with guidelines. It has to be patient discretion, clinician discretion, you know, all sorts of things, yeah. uh, f f factors. But most of us also think it could be a bit higher than that. So our study shows it's a bit more than that, but not, not sort of huge amounts. But there's scope for improvement. There's scope for saying we do a good job in treating children, uh, but we can do better. And most of our studies do find that. We could have a better health system. That's our purpose. But is this sort of the biggest one that's actually giving some real weight to the argument, to be able to make the argument to the government? Exactly. We'll Amazing. be talking, when we publish this paper, to government, to policy makers, to managers, to patient groups, to parents, uh, to clinicians, saying, okay, how can we work? We've had all those groups, by the way, on the study, doing the work to get the results. But now, now that we know those results, how do we get better care? to this particular patient group. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And I have one last question. And it's not really science related, but I always end with it and some people like it and some people don't. Is there a book or a movie or something that has inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world? Sure, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader, so I read heaps of stuff, but the book that really helped change my view was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it was a movie. Maybe your listeners might want to go and get it because it's still around. And that showed how in a mental health institution, the staff didn't really support the patients but brutalised them. And it made me think, this is no way to run a health system. And some parts of the health system, some studies have shown, some inquiries have shown, that the staff do, in fact, not provide compassionate care that all of us would like to receive. So that really drove me on. Uh, Paige, do you have any last final comments? 
Um, super interesting to you know hear some insights into how things are for you sort of day to day and hear a little bit from your perspective. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you indeed, Emily, and thank you indeed, um, Paige. And I can be tweeted at too at jbraithwaite one. Excellent. Thank you so much, Jeffrey, and I hope everyone else has enjoyed it. Uh, signing off from uh, Stories in Public Health.